I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. So, Jason, let me ask you a question. Do you think <laughs> that 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 rarely goes well when someone says that? But go ahead. <laughs> Usually, you're getting set up for something. Yeah, kind of, kind of. Especially whenever I ask you that. Yeah. Um, do you think that hyperkalemia is too complex for us to to handle in the EMS setting, or to understand, or to even diagnose? Uh, well, those are those are a lot of different questions. So you okay. said, let me ask a question. Um, <laughs> so is it difficult to diagnose? Yes, it is difficult to diagnose. But so are every single metabolic condition. Uh, um, all of those are difficult to quote unquote diagnose. But to your other question, can we, can, what was it? Can we have a high index of suspicion? No. Is there anything that we can do about it? Because oh, yeah. I, was, I was told, I was told recently, well, we don't have a protocol for hyperkalemia because there's nothing we can do about it there's there's no way that we can that we can diagnose it in the field and there's nothing we can do about it in the field oh well if you don't have a protocol then yeah you can't do anything about it because you know if it's not on the internet it's not in writing if it's not you know not something you've been spoon-fed then yeah certainly no that's ridiculous um yeah hyperkalemia is is a difficult thing but look it's not an obscure thing it's not something that we don't run across. In fact, there's every year there's 800,000 ER admissions with hyperkalemia. Whoa. So you know, this is something that just because you can't recognize it, maybe um, doesn't mean it's not happening. So um, yeah, so I think we, we absolutely can recognize it. And in certain instances, I do think that the treatment can begin in EMS. You know, I'm just pretty impressed that you, uh, you just popped out with that statistic. You just walk around with that kind of stuff in your head. Oh yeah. That's yeah. just <laughs> the rain man. Well, 63% of all statistics are made up. So probably take that for what there's, it's, there's a high probability worth. of that. Yeah. No. So yes, this is not an obscure uh, thing that um, we're not either don't deal with regularly or not going to deal with soon. Well, man, and that's what, uh, that, that's what kind of chaps me about it is because yeah, I understand why people may be intimidated by it because it is a, it's a complex pathophysiology process it affects multiple systems and so it's and, and it involves lab values and electrolytes and stuff that's that's pretty difficult if you haven't you know kept up with it or if you've never taken a physiology course um, yeah but do you even need you know it's my my question then to you and others would be do you need lab values to diagnose something, probably, but do you need lab values to have a high index of suspicion? There's a lot of stuff, you know, that we deal with in the pre-hospital setting where we don't have the lab values. You, you know, you, you, you we talk about things like STEMI um, and non-STEMI. Yeah, STEMI, you can diagnose a STEMI because you have the value that you need to diagnose a STEMI. For a non-STEMI, you don't. You cannot diagnose a non-STEMI in the back of an ambulance. Um, you have to have lab values, but you can have a very high index of suspicion that someone is having a non-STEMI just based on history, presentation, uh, and those kinds of things, and then be able to even potentially start treatment or at least get the patient to the right place. Absolutely. And, and the thing that kind of freaks me out about it is a lot of people, 
you know, they'll, they'll work non-emergency BLS transport services, right? What, what is the primary bread and butter of these services? Yeah, dialysis patients. Right. And and they don't even, they're just like, oh, whatever. Mr. So-and-so was in a bad mood today. I made up some vital signs and then I transported them. Bro, that, that guy is being kept alive by a machine. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. And not only that, just the process of dialysis can be, um, can be dramatic. I mean, I don't know, you know, think about how many calls have you run to a dialysis clinic for a cardiac arrest? It turns out it was, you know, most of the time it's a syncopal episode or something like that. But um, even in hospital, you hear a lot of code blues get called to the dialysis unit. And again, typically they're not a true cardiac arrest, but they are sick patients. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing that I want people to realize. And I, I talk about this with my students all the time. You have to take these patients seriously. Truthfully, I don't. And, and I'd like to know your opinion on this. Is that a BLS call? is a is a dialysis patient not necessarily just a dialysis patient but a patient that is presenting with potential hyperkalemic symptoms is that bls or do you need a cardiac monitor do you need do you need the ability to intervene with that yeah and, and i think we'll we'll talk here in a little bit on on you know the the controversy or what we're going to actually see with ekgs and whether or not we can determine hyperkalemia based on the ekg but you know, in these kinds of things, no, I don't think it's a BLS call. Um, in, in fact, you know, before I get off of my high horse on ALS versus BLS and the nonsense that I think of is, oh, an ALS call is when you perform an ALS skill. Yeah, we, we can do that on another episode, but that's a bunch of nonsense. Um, you know, the problem with hyperkalemia is, and, and really probably this is, a, I think, perhaps a problem of a misunderstanding in EMS is we go after a single diagnosis, a single issue. So we use words like hyperkalemia. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's just too much potassium, but really you're talking about many, many systems in the body uh, mm. that are affected by hyperkalemia. So you're not just looking at, oh, there's too much potassium in the blood. What does, number one, what caused it? And number two, what does that mean for multi-body systems? Absolutely. And to your point, you know, as we as we kind of transition here talking about the pathophysiology of it, and, and I think that that would be good before, you know, before we get into any kind of treatment, let's kind of talk about patho. To your point earlier, you know, how, how do they diagnose, quote unquote, a STEMI in the hospital setting? Typically, if they're drawing labs first, what are they, what are they looking for? They're looking for troponin, they're looking for other things, right? So, right. But do we have to have that to, have, like you said, have a high index of suspicion in the field? So, yeah, you talk about you mean for a STEMI or a non-STEMI? Either one. Yeah, well, yeah. First, for a STEMI, though, yeah, same thing. It's the you know we used to years ago. Hospitals would uh, draw labs on STEMIs, right? And so, it's it's ridiculous. It's like putting a pulse ox on someone who's not breathing. Like, right. well, I <laughs> I can tell you probably what it's the range it's going to be, and it's it's going to be low. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, and so with that to say, let's establish what a normal lab value is for potassium. So let's say that, you know, in a perfect world where we had ice stats and we had point of care testing and we could get just a, a real quick electrolyte panel. So in the serum, in the blood, not inside the cell, but in the blood, the normal level for potassium is three and a half to five milliequivalents per liter. So 
and and that's what we're talking about. Anything greater than five is considered hyperkalemia. But that dangerous level that we're talking about is, like we're saying, that dialysis patient, the patient who, let's say, they skipped a treatment because they weren't feeling well, right? They they just lay, they stayed at home. They kept watching Jerry Springer and Maury and, uh, you know, just that daytime <laughs> goodness. And, uh, you know, then three or four days later, they're lethargic. They're bradycardic. You know, they're, they're having poor muscle um, or high muscle fatigue, rather. And they call 911 just for a general sickness. And you're like, oh, there's no big deal here. Put them on the cardiac monitor and you see sinusoidal waves. And you're like, what is that, a ventricular rhythm or what is that? <laughs> yeah, that's about to be no rhythm. Right, exactly. So, and that's, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit, but you know, the, Anything approaching 7.0 or higher, that's, that's where we could be talking about arrhythmogenic levels of potassium in the blood. Um, so why does it happen? You know, we've already been hinting around one of them is renal failure, right? So dialysis. Yeah, patients. and that's, I think if you ask any, not even just a paramedic student or an EMT student, but a seasoned person, what causes hyperkalemia, everyone's going to say, renal insufficiency or di uh, dialysis patient and they're going to stop there mm -hmm. and if it's not a dialysis patient people aren't typically going to go down the road of hyperkalemia so um you know i think that's important you know as we look at uh, other causes of this that some may be a little bit subtle uh, but they are there. So we may have a patient that's not a dialysis patient, yet mm -hmm. they still could have hyperkalemia. Yeah, absolutely. What about that DKA patient? What about the DKA patient that comes in with the glucose of high? <laughs> yeah. And, then, and they get their labs back and they have a glucose, a serum glucose of 900. Well, if you think about that, what happened, you know, in this, a lot of people, they, they know water follows salt, right? They, they memorize that through school right, to help themselves. Right. Get so through. you know how Lasix works and all that. Yeah. 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 Well, water also follows glucose too. So if, if the serum is, it has, you know, a level of 900 on the glucose, guess where that water's going in the cell? It's leaving the cell and it's going to go into the, uh, into the extracellular fluid and potassium is going to follow right behind it because the concentration of potassium inside the cell is going to be super high. So that's why in a DKA patient, you can even have hyperkalemia. Right. And in addition to that, so we really call this cause excessive tissue release. Mm -hmm. And insulin actually puts potassium back in the cell. So when we have a diabetic patient, especially DKA, they don't have any insulin. The potassium is not getting back in the cell. It's staying in the extracellular space or in the bloodstream. And then we're getting hyper hyperkalemia from that. Absolutely. And, and there's a bunch of other, you know, Addison's disease, Addison's disease patients, you know, they can be hyperkalemic. So there's a lot of hormonal issues. But what about, let's say, what about that, uh, that excited delirium patient, right? They, they've been, they've been on a bender, they've, they've gone and seen Walt and Jesse, and they've got some of that good blue. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that they, uh, you know, they've been awake for four days, they're fighting, they're kicking around their, their body is extreme high temperature, they're breaking down muscle tissue, they're in rhabdo, because they're in excited delirium. And now they have myoglobin and potassium floating around in their bloodstream. I mean, that's hyperkalemia. That's potentially about to go into arrest. 
Yeah. And they couldn't be further from a dialysis patient. So those are, those are things um, that we really need to look at. And then, uh, you know, the last thing, and, and probably along with the um, dialysis patient, they're taking supplements or mm. anybody else taking supplements. Uh, you know, if you're um, a lot of people will use salt substitute that contains potassium. Um, some might actually take, uh, you know, some of these uh, potassium supplements because, you know, they're on these, uh, what they consider a health kick. And so they're taking multivitamins and they're taking potassium supplements and uh, they can actually overdose on those. Um, and even with, you know, we have a lot, we see a lot of people that come in and, uh, you know, their creatinine's high, um, their GFR is high, they haven't been diagnosed with kidney failure. Uh, however, they're in likely the first stage or two um, of, uh, of renal failure. And so if some of those people are, are taking too many supplements or salt substitutes, that type of thing, they may not be on dialysis and absolutely um, have hyperkalemia. And then as their kidneys are not working well, they're not excreting that. So it's slowly coming up without them really knowing until they start seeing some specific signs and symptoms of it. Absolutely. So as we, as we move on down and we we're moving on down talking about the patho and everything, um, everybody knows peak T waves. That's what everybody's going to look for, right? Everybody's going to look for peak T waves and hyperkalemia. Cause like you said, most people are like, all right, dialysis patient, renal failure, peak T waves, move on. You know, so that's, I think to truly understand the EKG changes that you could see, you have to understand the cardiac action potential. You have to, because if you don't, then you have no clue. You truthfully don't even know what you're looking at or why you're getting peak T waves. Oh yeah, absolutely. But before we do that, if we can, let me, let me just, let's kind of just go through the EKG and there, you know, for, for the astute people, you'll say, um, Oh, well, the EKG is not, it's not a good diagnostic tool for hyperkalemia. And I would say, yes, probably, probably not. It is, um, it is not good at being specific, um, but it is pretty, it is sensitive for hyperkalemia. So that means it can't conclusively say yes, but it can very conclusively say no. So if you have a high index of suspicion, but you have a very normal EKG, yeah, maybe we can kind of go go down a different road. But let's just kind of talk about the steps real quick that a person in hyperkalemia go through with their EKGs. Like like you said, the peak T wave is one, but there's some other subtleties that can actually happen um, with the EKG. One is uh, the PR interval will start to start to lengthen, okay, and then the P wave disappears. And we're going to kind of talk through that with the action potential on why that happens. But then as as the P wave disappears and the potassium starts to rise, the QRS widens. Um, and then as it, as the P wave disappears, the QRS widens. And then we get this, it's called a, it's a sine wave, a sinusoidal, this, uh, you know, kind of wave like pattern that happens. And, you know, people look at it often as, Oh, is that ST elevation? Is that a is that an idioventricular rhythm? Because it's a very wide QRS. Um, and in fact, the other sign of this that kind of throws people off is an, a sudden unexplained bradycardia. 
So now you have a bradycardia, you have a heart rate of 40, this sinusoidal, it kind of looks idioventricular, um, but it's a pretty classic, um, a pretty classic sign. And then, you know, as we continue to rise and we kind of pass that seven into nine, now we're getting, you know, some dysrhythmias, ventricular dysrhythmias, and likely the patient now is going into asystole. Mm. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, as we, as we talk about this action potential, I just want to keep you guys to keep those kind of steps in mind. They are not necessarily sequential steps. Um, it depends really on how fast the, um, potassium levels are rising and how well the body is compensating for them. So yeah, they don't point. necessarily happen in sequence. Uh, we can go from, you know, a, a peak T wave to asystole. Uh, very quickly without seeing those other signs. But anyway, I think, uh, I think it's important to have that in mind as we talk about now the action potential, probably something that you learned in school uh, years ago and hadn't thought much about it. But when you truly understand it, uh, you kind of see why these patients go through these um, steps, especially with their EKG, and why it's super important for us to catch this as early as possible. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. Good point. Uh, so before we jump into that, let's just remind everybody, you know, like you said, it may have been since school, you know, sodium is the primary extracellular ion. So it wants to be in the in the fluid. And that's why whenever we look at our normal lab values, we have a normal sodium range of 135 to 145, right? Because it's the primary extracellular. Whereas in potassium, we only have a normal range of three and a half to five. So there's supposed to be a lot more sodium on the outside than there is on the inside. Potassium is the primary intracellular ion. So it wants to be in the cell. And then calcium, man, calcium is one of the most important things in your body. It helps out with the clotting cascade. It helps out with several different types of action potentials and membrane potentials. Um, so essentially, I want you to think of it as a helper ion that will assist in several physiologic processes. Um, and, and I do think it's really important too, Jason, that that we focus about resting potentials and threshold potentials, because correct me if I'm wrong, that's what gives us the potential to, no pun intended, that gives us the ability to go into an arrhythmia, right? Whenever we have that increased resting potential, the threshold, the threshold doesn't change. Threshold's still negative seven. No. Yeah, absolutely. So, so when we're talking about the resting potential, you know, every, every, Thing, everything is normal the way it wants to be at rest with the ability now to depolarize and and so I know as you're listening to this this is some, this is something I think people should probably go back and refresh themselves on um, and I think we're going to post some some um, some kind of animation along with this it's really hard to see without drawing it out but as we have potassium inside the cell and sodium outside the cell Okay, the um, the 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 millivolts, the charge inside the cell is negative. Um, in fact, it's sitting around negative 90 millivolts. Um, as potassium leaves the cell, the cell becomes more positive or starts to lose its negativity. And as it gets to a certain threshold, that's when sodium enters and that's when the rest of this pathway happens. And so now we get up to our threshold, which is somewhere around 30 or 40 positive plus th uh, 30 or 40 millivolts. Uh, we kind of plateau and then we depolarize. And then we go back to negative 90, it resets 
and everything, um, everything happens again. And so this happens, you know, it has to reach these plateaus for these essentially for these doors to open in the membrane for sodium to enter. If sodium enters too soon or not enough potassium leaves, now we have all sorts of problems. Um, you know, the other thing to remember, I think, is, is the difference between that we're talking with these about cardiac myocytes, the ones that actually contract. Um, so not to get confused with the pacemaker cells, which actually follow a little bit different, um, a little bit different values. But for the most part, we're talking about the cell, the resting potential sitting at negative 90 potassium leaves as we start to depolarize sodium enters, we reach our threshold. Um, and, uh, and then we plateau and then we depolarize. All those things have to happen in that order in a very specific way. Otherwise, we don't get the right amount of depolarization. We don't get the right amount of repolarization um, and the cells become excitable. There's also, that's, this is where we start to see our arrhythmias. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to make this a little easier because Jason's using big words and I don't like big words. <laughs> I think I confused myself on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. All right. All right. <clears throat> so I, Interpret I like, that. all right. I like, again, everybody knows I like comedy. I, I uh, and eighties movies, seventies and eighties movies. So anyway, I want you guys uh -oh. to think of the cell. Yeah, we're, we're going there, buddy. We're going there. <laughs> I'm not <All> right. sure. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. So first, I want you guys to think of the cell as a house. All right. And around the house, you have to understand that there's people, right? There's people. They have different personalities. And there's going to be a party. The party is essentially the contraction. All right. So I want you to think of sodium as the obnoxious group of fraternity bros looking for a house to party in. Like they're going down the neighborhood. They're looking for a house to party in. They're super positive and they party like animal house hard. Right. So that's, you know, we're looking at animal house here. Um, potassium, however, these are the guys that are like, they wear turtlenecks. They're just like super quiet. They don't, they're very antisocial, but they live in a super nice house near the campus. Um, it's big enough for sodium and their bros calcium to come in and throw down and party. But potassium really doesn't like that. They're really antisocial. So the neighbors beside the house, right? The neighboring house, they just finished having their own party. And then for some reason, the front door opens and all the sodium frat bros come in and the party starts, right? So the party starts and the volume of the party turns from negative 90 up to negative 70. And at that point, I want you to think about Back to the Future. It's like where Marty McFly says, let's see if you bastards can do 90 and hits 88 miles per hour and then boom, takes off. Um, essentially, the same thing happens, right? Same thing happens in your heart. Um, except instead of traveling back in time to have some odd Freudian sexual tension with your teenage mother, your sodium <laughs> channels open. Sorry, I need, a, I need to digest that one for a second. I really okay. hope that, that my people are out here listening okay, and they're just ahead. like, I understand you, Brandon. I understand the way your brain thinks. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. So... Uh, so yeah, whenever, whenever all the sodium bros pop in at negative 70, they, it's like hitting the rocket boosters, boom. And then that's whenever the music gets really loud, the pause, the, the party goes up to positive 30, right? So the volume's really loud. 
So now all the sodium bros uh, that are waiting in the front yard, they storm the house and they turn the volume up to 30. And uh, that's like animal house level, John Belushi in a toga slamming a guitar against the wall. So at this point, all the potassium dudes are pissed off. They're like, all these guys are invading our, our homestead. And they leave. They're just out. They're antisocial. They don't want anything to do with the party. So they run out of the house into the front yard. They're not supposed to be in the front yard, especially in that number. Um, and they're waiting for the party to end. And so with all the potassium leaving, now the volume of the party starts to decrease. So sodium's like, whoa, wait a minute, bros. Calcium comes in and stands in the doorway. Calcium's like, wait a minute. You guys can't leave. You got it. You got to party with us. You got to give us a chance. You got to give us a chance. But potassium's like, nope, we're, we're done with this, man. So calcium holds them off for a minute, causes a plateau phase. And then potassium bursts through the door. They go out into the front yard and the party goes down to just above zero. Like they can barely hear the party still going. Um, and, uh, and then potassium starts to leave in mass numbers. So at this point, all the potassiums in the front yard and the house party is dead, completely dead. And, uh, you know, the, the biggest guy, the biggest potassium advocate, he's the RA, the resident assistant of the, of potassium house. Right. Um, he comes in, says, <laughs> says enough is enough. And his name is pump sodium potassium pump. Um, he comes in, starts grabbing sodium by the back of the neck, dragging them out of the house and throwing them into the yard. Like uncle Phil throughout DJ jazzy Jeff from the Bel Air mansion. Um, and potassium starts to come back in and returns the volume back to normal. Does that make any sense? Yeah. <laughs> I think for all the millennials are going to have to look up some of those references. Yeah. DJ jazzy Jeff. That's a, uh... That's a pretty subtle one. <laughs> they should get that. I mean, they, they should at least get the Fresh Prince references. So at this point, what happens is now the sodium bros that just got thrown out into the front yard, well, they go down to the next neighboring house to try to kick that party up. So, so yeah. I really hope somebody got something out of that because that's how I think. All right. So, so with all that, all that goofiness aside, what, what exactly happens during hyperkalemia that, you, you know, and, and again, I think it's going to be really important that we post some, some images here because it's hard to visualize this stuff, but instead of having that really sharp uh, depolarization, you know, all the sodium channels coming in, like Jason already talked about, the resting potential has moved from negative 90 to really close to that negative 70 so it's excitable so therefore we don't have as much sodium channels available to cause that really sharp depolarization to positive 30 so we have a slurring of that depolarization so what does that cause on the ekg jason yeah so the first is where we start to lose the p wave the pr interval widens and then that's where we start to lose our p wave because the cell is more excitable we've lost the sodium channel so as we're going up in depolarization as those sodium channels open we essentially lose one of them and so instead of negative 90 we're really close to that negative 70 so the cell inside inside the cell is is more positive so we don't get that upslope quickly of depolarization and then that plateau, we just kind of get this little, this kind of slow up slurring um, of, uh, of, of the uh, channels and of the electricity going through. So we first, that's where we really, we first lose our P wave. And then as that gets to, as that flattens out, our QRS widens. 
Um, and as the potassium goes up, that um, kind of uh, in de that depolarization, repolarization starts to uh, happen more together. We don't get that strong depolarization, strong repolarization. They kind of start to almost happen all at one time. And so that's where we get that sinusoidal um, kind of wave-like motion uh, going through. And, and let me ask you this, because if you look in, in a lot of these, I'm hoping a lot of our listeners are students, um, and I'm hoping a lot of our listeners are actually diving back into a textbook being like, all right, I'm going to look this crap up now that these two idiots are bumbling about it. And one of them's talking about <laughs> and animal watch house. animal house. Yeah. Yeah. If this guy that's bumbling about fresh prints and animal house can do it, I can do it. That's what you all should think. <laughs> what? Yeah. There's, there's your inspiration for the day. Um, so the widening of the QT interval, you know, everybody looks at, at ST segment or they look at QRS complex. Is that what you just explained? Is that why the whole entire from the Q from the Q to the T is that why that complex is getting wider? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So it's, it's getting wider because we're not having that sharp depolarization repolarization. Um, so it's, it's taking longer to go through, um, to make its way down. It's, uh, and, and so it's just really just messing up uh, all of the action potential. So we're not getting that clear release of, of, of potassium. And mainly because, you know, as, as we're looking at things like diffusion and osmosis, in order for um, molecules to pass through a membrane, we have to have a higher and a lower concentration somewhere. And so when the really high concentration of potassium is outside the cell, the potassium inside the cell isn't going to leave. And if it's not going to leave, then we're not going to go, we're not going to open up enough. We're not going to have enough sodium come in and we're not going to have enough depolarization awesome. or repolarization. Awesome. And so that's why we don't get that spiked QRS and then watching that QRS come back to baseline and then back up again. And, and so like we were talking about earlier, this is dangerous because after we get those sinusoidal waves, I mean, we are, what would you say? Minutes? from BFib potentially? Or, yeah. And, and I think, you know, depending on how fast the potassium is right, is rising. This is a, uh, this is now a very, very critical patient. Actually, they've probably been critical for a while and we're just now uh, manifesting it on the EKG, but this is a very sick patient that uh, actually, I, and I don't know what the statistics are. I would say anecdotally, my experience has been that this patient is, is likely not going to survive. And again, it's not just because of the hyperkalemia. It's because of all the things, number one, that either cause the hyperkalemia because if your kidneys are shutting down and your, your potassium is that high, you're probably incredibly acidotic. Mm. And ultimately, you know, you're going to go into organ failure and, um, because, you know, the other, the other thing I think that is, is important is potassium is not just in cardiac cells. I mean, they're in, they're, they're in neurons, they're in skeletal muscles, they're all throughout your body. So if you're getting, um, you know, kind of jacked up conduction in your myocardial cells, you're getting it in other areas too, along with all the organ failure that you're getting and everything else that goes along with just our diagnosis of hyperkalemia. Yep. And, and I think it's also re really important. I know we've said this twice, but anything worth saying twice is worth saying three times. Um, is a sinusoidal wave always going to be present in a critical case of hyperkalemia? No, not necessarily. 
Again, yes. I think it's it, it has to do with how fast the hyperkalemia um, rose, how high it is. Mm-hmm. So not not just how high it is, but how fast it got there, um, you know, how the patient's compensating. So we can't again, we can't say this is going to be a hey, if we don't see sinusoidal waves, they're not sick yet. Yeah. Um, and it, so it's it's just a sign. It's another it's another thing to to kind of understand, um, but to know that when it gets to that point, you're mm-hmm. you're close to the end. Absolutely, is likely next. All right. So I want to throw out the textbook treatment and essentially the theory behind it. So you know, this is what I'm going to teach this, my students, and this is you know what you you can look in any nursing reference, any paramedic reference. Um, I'm not sure if all paramedic books will talk about all these, but let's just kind of dive into it. So when we're talking about the treatment, there's three different ways that we treat hyperkalemia, both in the pre-hospital setting and in the hospital setting. And again, there's a lot of theory behind this. Um, but the three ways we want to stabilize the membrane, then we want to shift the potassium back into the cell, and then we want to remove any excess potassium from the serum. So there, there is a mnemonic that you can find all over the place. This isn't, I didn't make this up. I'm not going to take credit for it, but it's called C big K drop. All right. So whenever you write that out, I want you to think C as in the letter C, not spelling out S E E. So C as in calcium, B as in beta agonists or by or and bicarb potentially. I insulin, G glucose, K for K exhalate, and then D for diuretics and dialysis. So let's kind of walk through those for a minute. So calcium infusions. In most ambulances, most pre-hospital setting, we have calcium chloride, not calcium gluconate. Uh, it's a little more stable. It's a little easier to use. So that's why it's, and I believe it's a little more affordable. So that's why we're able to carry it on the bus. But calcium stabilizes the cardiac uh, cell membrane by antagonizing potassium at the cellular level. So essentially, like in my little dumb analogy, it's, he's blocking it from the door. He's standing in the doorway saying, no, bro, you don't need to leave. You need to stay right here. And so he stabilizes or (laughs) calcium stabilizes the membrane. I'm still stuck in cartoon land, um, which rapidly stabilizes the membrane potential. Beta agonists. So let's go back to to calcium for just a second. So there's actually, uh, you know, some good bit of discussion on uh, calcium gluconate versus calcium chloride Mm. and why we carry calcium chloride. Actually, the recommendation, and I'm really, I'm I'm a little bit surprised, you know, as in ACLS as you're going through your H's and T's. Um, you know, this is this is the way, one of the times I think. Uh, well, there's a lot of times where AHA and ACLS just kind of stop because they have to dumb it down. Um, but if you've got a patient in cardiac arrest, there's actually, you know, I, I don't know if there's necessarily good data behind it, um, but the recommendation is actually calcium chloride in a cardiac arrest. Uh, the calcium gluconate should be given um, if you have it. Uh, before they go into arrest, but actually when they're in cardiac arrest, calcium chloride is actually a good option. Wow. And now this is for, uh, for H's and T's. Yeah. So if you're, you know, if you're, you've got a cardiac arrest at at a, uh, somewhere where you have a high index of suspicion of hyperkalemia, um, it, uh, it, it is in the literature to, to, uh, to consider giving calcium chloride, not calcium gluconate. 
Awesome. Very cool. Very cool. So we get that, uh, we, we can give that calcium chloride in order to stabilize the membrane and then moving on to B, uh, beta agonists. So we, all of us have, well, most of us have a, uh, a beta agonist that's readily nebulized in the back of the ambulance in albuterol. Some services carry Zopinex, some services carry, um, Duoneb, either way, you have a beta agonist, beta 2 agonist, which essentially at the cellular level activate or promotes the use of an enzyme that activates the sodium potassium pump. So what that's going to do is it's going to take uh, it's going to take sodium out of the cell and bring potassium back in. So again, this is the part of that that uh, three step method where we are shifting uh, the, the potassium back into the cell. And now Jason, let's talk about bicarb for a second, because I know a lot of people, a lot of pre-hospital protocols, uh, will say very strongly calcium and bicarb for hyperkalemia. So let's talk about the use of bicarb and hyperk. Yeah. So, you know, if you're looking at giving bicarb, why would we give bicarb? Well, we're going to give it for the same reason reason that we give it to any patient that's acidotic to try to use as a buffer to decrease the acidosis. Um, really, we have to know if the patient is acidotic. Now we can make, I think we can make certain um, assumptions or high index of suspicion that if we've gone to a certain point of hyperkalemia that we by default have acidosis, but the bicarb is strictly to treat the acidosis. It's not going to, it's not going going to uh, do any of the three um, that you talked about. It's not going to shift anything. It's not going to do anything to the membrane. It's not going to excrete. It doesn't address the potassium itself. It only addresses um, the acidosis. So it really is, again, in the literature, uh, if they're not acidotic, it's really not recommended. And, and let's kind of let's talk about that for a sec. So essentially what you're telling me is that the bicarb is treating a symptom not the problem. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, sometimes we do need to treat that symptom. I mean, if we are acidotic, sometimes regardless of the acidosis, you do need to raise the pH. Otherwise you're going to have a whole lot of other um, mm -hmm. issues with that. But, um, but the recommendations really are that it's not given routinely unless we know or have a high index of suspicion that they're, uh, that they're acidotic. Mm. Um, and there's a lot, you know, there's actually, um, you know, I don't know that there's a lot of literature out yet, but I think there's a lot. Well, there is a lot of uh, expert console, uh, expert opinions, um, even on the use of bicarb now in cardiac arrest. When mm. we have people that, uh, you know, are, are no have known acidosis that we don't need to be, you know, as 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 conservative with it as we were in the past. But it certainly doesn't need to be a frontline treatment for hyperkalemia unless we know that they're acidotic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, moving on into the shift, um, when we're trying to shift the potassium back into the cell, insulin. So obviously this isn't going to be something that many, if any, pre-hospital uh, providers are going to be giving in the United States. You know, I can't speak for internationally, uh, but insulin uh, actu actually activates the sodium potassium pump and will bring potassium back into the cell from the serum. Yeah, and it, it's it's very effective. I mean, within 15 minutes, it can drop your potassium um, by half a point. Mm. Um, wow! And that's, so it's uh, it's it's pretty effective. That's pretty remarkable, actually. Um, and then glucose from there. So 
essentially the glucose, we're, we're looking at dextrose solutions, right? We're, we're looking at uh, administering dextrose solutions, not necessarily D50, but if you have the ability to utilize a more diluted solution such as D5W or potentially D10, um, that, that is essentially in order to carefully balance the glucose levels in the serum because you're already giving insulin. Um, so essentially, this is to make sure that you don't cause some type of hypoglycemic situation here. Um, and then K-exalate. So this is a fun one. Good time with old K-exalate. <laughs> Especially for those of you listening that work in critical care and, and get the uh, experience of K-exalate being given in the ED. And then uh, a little while later, you're with, you have a mess on your hands, literally yeah. and figuratively. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which I'm kind of happy that we don't give this pre-hospital. It's a PO medication that increases fecal potassium excretion through binding of potassium in the lumen of the GI tract. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's uh, some good old Montezuma's revenge in the uh, in the form of. <laughs> <laughs> there's now there's good news. There's good news for this, and and some of the recent literature is uh, actually. Um, kind of moving away from uh, recommending its use that there's some other uh, there's other s some synthetic polymers that will remove it from the GI tract without going to those um, without going to those extremes. Um, and uh, and so even some of this stuff is given over the counter. Um, so people are taking this regularly. If their potassium is up, they're getting a prescription for this and taking it at home. Um, but there's some other uh, other things out there that um, that are w work better than KXLA and doesn't have, you know, some of the side effects and some of the extreme um, <laughs> extreme things that people and, and oh I I I have not experienced this myself but you know it's kind of like uh, a GI bleed people are like hey what you know what does a GI bleed smell like oh yeah you've never you've never experienced that then if you have to ask that question so exactly <laughs> talk to some of the critical care folks and what happens with uh kxla they're yeah they're, they're paying each yeah. other to Ooh, take the patient man it's rough it's rough so thankfully there's some other there's some other options for that now yes and on the other end of the removal process we have diuretics um so instead of uh and instead of using the fecal route, this way we're utilizing the urinary excretion of potassium through the renal tubules. Um, and that's a whole different uh, conversation about how we have different types of diuretics, uh, some that are loop diuretics versus osmotic diuretics. So um, essentially, uh, just to make it basic, we are excreting the potassium that's in the serum through urine. So I know that we've had Dr. Johnson on in the past, Dr. Dink Johnson, and he talks about he is not a fan of furosemide in the field, not a fan of Lasix in the field. Um, and I think he actually brought this up as an example. So, you know, what 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 can we talk about with Lasix or furosemide or any of the type of diuretics that we could be utilizing in the field for hyperkalemia? Well, you know, so, you know, and I, I agree. I, I agree that... Um, you know, unless you've got long transports, you know, Lasix is starting to work, you know, as it works, as it's a loop diuretic that even if you're not producing urine, it is still causing fluid shifts. The, the problem, the problem with um, diuretics are, you know, who are the patients that are mostly 
um, hyperkalemic with yep. their renal patients. Renal yep. patients don't produce much urine. <laughs> you know, you're you're also talking about a, a patient that potentially is uh, acidotic. If you're acidotic, your kidneys are shutting down. You know, for again, it's going back to the. This is not a. The problem is not too necessarily too just too much potassium it's the problems that either causing it or caused by it and so you know we just see these patients that they're not naturally producing enough urine uh, um, and if you can't produce urine then you know you're not going to excrete the potassium right exactly so so really then you're just left with the ultimate which is hemodialysis um and uh, really, this is the gold standard. It is, uh, it's difficult to do. And I say hemodialysis, really any kind, any kind of dialysis, peritoneal dialysis, um, but hemodialysis, this is the one, you know, these are the patients that uh, CRRT uh, in critical care, they have to go in, um, on this. And then also go, let's go back to the K-exalate thing real quick, is that K-exalate can actually cause colonic necrosis. And, and so, yeah, you think, you think what's coming out is bad. It's, uh, you know, what it's causing can, can be, can be bad for the patient. So, uh, dialysis is, is kind of the gold standard. It is invasive. The, you know, the shunts you have to put in the, the, uh, fistulas that you have to, that you have to create for hemodialysis. Um, you know, it's not, they, they do it so much in the hospital now it's, uh, you know, I hate to say any, anything is routine, but, uh, they do this a lot. Um, and oftentimes they can, uh, take care of this and get the patient off any kind of long-term dialysis. Absolutely. Absolutely. So essentially from a pre-hospital perspective, we can take away that we have the ability to, to make a pretty remarkable difference in reference to stabilizing, um, the cardiac myocyte membrane and which is huge. I mean, we're trying to prevent cardiac arrest in that situation. Yeah. Ultimately, if you can't do that, you can't win this battle. Yeah. I mean, ultimately that's, you know, that's, what's going to kill you if, unless you let it go long enough or you have multi-system organ failure. Um, but, uh, yeah, you go, you go into asystole, you go into cardiac arrest from this. It, uh, it is very, very difficult to get a patient out of it and then keep them out of it. Yeah. So, so while, you know, we may not be able to do three quarters of the treatment that is on this list in reference to saving the patient's life, I truthfully feel like we can, we can perform one of the most important on this list, which is that calcium chloride infusion. And again, we can also administer uh, beta agonists as well. So, yeah. And I will even, I would even push that back to probably even more important of what we do and anything in medicine, the most important is the assessment. Yeah. Um, you know, let's be honest that, that anybody can give treatment unless you're doing surgery or some sort of invasive intervention. When you're talking about medication, the treatment of medication is not difficult to do that. That is not what makes, a good paramedic from a bad paramedic, a good doctor from a bad doctor. It is the assessment and the ability to get the patient to the right place. Um, you know, we have seen 
time and time again. And I think as people are, as you're listening to this, you can think of many, many examples where EMS comes in with just a phenomenal report and their high index of suspicion spills over to the high index of suspicion of the ED. And that patient gets treated way more, way faster than if you come in just as a I don't know, another, another annoying dialysis patient with probably VRE that we had to transport. And now we're exposed and, oh man, this is just our 10th call of the day and this sucks. And this should be another ambulance service doing this. And you just dump them off somewhere. Mm-hmm. And next thing, next thing, you know, they're in cardiac arrest or, you know, like we talked about at the beginning, the more subtle things, the diabetic patient, the, um, you know, the excited delirium, the rhabdo patient, yeah. you know, we see, uh, see a lot of these, you know, we, we were seeing these a good bit with the craze of the, uh, pop-up boot camps. Yeah. Uh, the morning boot camp. So you get these, um, you know, you get these really out of shape people, you know, the first of hey, January, hey. they're going to change their life. <laughs> I'm looking at the first of April. Okay. Leave me alone. And all of a sudden they want to join these boot camps and, you know, they, they just ate their slim gym. That was their breakfast. And then all of a sudden they're keto, bro. You know, yeah. <laughs> and now they're showing up and, uh, you know, their kidneys are shutting down and they're, you know, they're hyperkalemic because, you know, they, they just pushed it way too hard. Those are the, those are the more difficult ones. And you could easily get a, uh, a patient refusal on a 35 year old who was just working out too hard and turns out they have rhabdo. Right. Absolutely. So it is definitely that assessment that is what that is the most important. Yeah. And let's turn the lens on ourselves a little bit because, you know, as we spoke in, in one of our previous episodes, there's a lot of services out here who are combination, right? We have a lot of firefighter paramedics out there. Well, what if your pride gets the best of you and you do some crazy gear workout or you do some, you know, you do something stupid on shift, which is taking a bunch of pre-workout, not hydrating. And then you get out there and you're doing drills and then you fight a fire and then you're going into rhabdo, just like Jason was just talking about. So, which is easy to do. So. Yeah. The, the, the uh, easy ones are the dialysis patients. It's the other ones um, that we can really make a difference on. And, you know, the, we don't have a protocol for that. Well, nonsense. You have an assessment for that. Yep. Absolutely. And even if you say, oh, we only have a few minutes of transport, we don't have enough time to start some of this stuff, or we don't have a, you know, we, we have to call for orders and we're not going to get it. Okay. I get that. But the assessment is still important. The transport is important. The passing on the information, like we have talked exhaustively on this program of we are in a system of care. We are not in a, oh, well, EMS can't do anything about this. So it's not important. No, Mm -hmm. EMS starts the assessment, gives that information. That information is hopefully taken and trusted. If it's not trusted, you don't work in a true system and you got to fix that. Um, But when it is trusted, uh, then that patient's going to move through quicker and we can stop this process before it continues because likely it's not going to stop itself. Right. Absolutely. I think the big takeaway today, folks, don't do meth. (laughs) And watch 80s movies so you can understand what Brandon's talking about. Hey, they know. They already know. They get it. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. 
Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.